Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and this is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I tell of my unforgettable ordination as a deacon, and then about my early days growing up in North Vancouver. My family and I were part of St. Martin's Anglican Church, which extended my sense of community and of belonging out into the neighborhood the world was a safe place. But as I rode my bike up and down the back lane, how could I know that it wouldn't last? I'm reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland, Chapter 1, Part 1. Here we go. The ordination rite for deacons in the Anglican Church is designed to raise them up, but also to put them in their place. The bishop who ordains them might just as well say what the church is really thinking. Yes, you've been chosen, good for you, but don't think you're something special, because you're not. Now go make me a cup of tea. Deacons follow the example of St. Stephen, their patron saint. Stephen was chosen, along with a few others, to distribute food among the widows and orphans of the early church. He did this so that the real ministers, the apostles, wouldn't have to give up their preaching jobs to wait on tables. This is the actual phrase used by the apostles according to the book of Acts. Presumably, they thought they were above that sort of thing. The role of a deacon is to take that kind of crap with forbearance and long-suffering. This is their lot. They are to model humility while serving the ministers who really matter, the priests and especially the bishops. At a regular worship service, deacons do the Joe jobs. For instance, setting the table for Holy Communion and removing the dishes afterward, like a busboy. When a bishop is present, the deacon is often assigned as their personal attendant. The deacon is expected to do something with the bishop's mitre, a universally unflattering ceremonial headdress, when the bishop removes it. To stow the crozier, a fancy sort of shepherd's staff when the bishop is done with it, and then to dismiss the congregation at the end of the service when the bishop is done with them too. As the deacon is seen to serve the bishop, the people in the pews are reminded that this is what Christian service looks like. It's thankless work and sometimes risky in the way of scapegoats. Like when a silver crozier gets dropped on a marble floor, everyone looks at the deacon who may be standing half a chancel away. It's not incidental that Stephen, the church's first deacon, was also its first martyr, stoned to death when the crowd didn't like his sermon. That won him the dubious distinction of being named the patron saint of stonemasons. Most modern-day deacons just want to move on as soon as possible to become priests. The ordination service, then, is meant to exalt you as an ordained minister, even as it reminds you that you are but a humble servant. 
My own deaconing stretched me in both directions, up and down, and then in a few other directions as well. It was a glorious service. The music swirled around the great cathedral church of St. James in downtown Toronto, like that of a heavenly chorus. The ordinance, seven of us, all men, lined up to process down the long center aisle as the congregation sang their praises to God. Just as we got our signal to go, the dean of the cathedral, a single man and odd, gave my bum a squeeze and said, Okay, lads, off you go. I wanted to look back. Did that really just happen? But the service suddenly had forward momentum, so it was all eyes front. The deacons-to-be sat together in the front row facing the pulpit. The preacher, quoting the book of Isaiah, prophesied that our strength would be renewed and that we would rise up with wings like eagles. We would run and not grow weary. We would walk and not faint. It seemed a lofty claim for mere lackeys, but I knew he meant well, as if to say, that hand on your bum, don't worry about it. You're going to learn to like it. When the moment came for me to kneel before the archbishop on the marble steps to receive the laying on of hands that would leave me, in some people's minds, ontologically changed, the experience became suddenly painful, and not just metaphorically. I almost fainted on the spot. Tiny spurs had been growing at the top of my shin bones, just below my kneecaps. This was something I hadn't realized or hadn't taken seriously until that very moment when my full weight came to rest on those razor-sharp calcifications. Perhaps if I'd spent a little more time on my knees in the days leading up to the occasion, I wouldn't have been caught off guard. Pain shot up from my legs, right into my brain. I squeezed my eyes shut to block out the electrifying jolts, resembling a man deep in prayer. With the entire cathedral looking on, I tried slowly redistributing my weight by raising my shoes off the floor in search of a flat spot between the spurs and my kneecaps. It might have appeared that I was levitating, held down only by the weight of the archbishop's hands on my head. Sweat ran down my upturned face. I tried to maintain my composure. The archbishop was slowly and meaningfully intoning the words that would make me a deacon. Send down your Holy Spirit, quickly, upon your servant Brian. Please, just do it. Whom we now consecrate in your name, for the love of Jesus, to the office and work of a deacon in the church. Okay, okay, let me up. Finally, I rose to my feet, a deacon. My legs shook and my face was drained of its color. I was vested with a stole, draped diagonally from my left shoulder across my chest and tied at my right side, a sign of my bonded service to God and to the church. I was formally presented along with my fellow deacons to the congregation, which applauded thunderously to welcome its newest servants. I felt proud, savoring the moment as I took it all in. Things were going to be different from now on. But it wasn't the church that brought this home to me. It was a little old lady, a complete stranger, earlier that same day. 
After my morning services in Cookstown, the country parish I had been serving as a student in charge, an oxymoron if ever there was one, I returned to the rectory to get myself ready for my ordination that afternoon. I put on a black clergy shirt and my new grey suit, bought for me by my parents. I packed up my robes and the new red stole I would wear at the ceremony. Then, for the first time, I slipped the little white plastic tab into my collar, the telltale sign that revealed to the world my new identity. I set out for the city, looking already like an ordained minister. I pulled into an Italian neighborhood at the city limits to grab a sandwich at a deli. The old lady would not have been able to make the distinction between the layperson I still was and the deacon I was soon to become. Nor, for that matter, between the deacon I was soon to become and the priest I wasn't yet. I must have looked every inch a priest to her, a young one at that, and Catholic. Approaching the deli from the opposite direction, she saw me and rushed ahead to open the door for me to walk through. She lowered her eyes as I passed. I had the sense that, had it been raining, she might have removed her cloak and laid it on the pavement stones for me to tread upon. Trained from my youth to hold women's chairs and open doors for them, this just felt wrong. But I felt sure I could get used to it. I was born to be a minister on August the 8th, 1953, in the Lionsgate Hospital, North Vancouver. My parents, Arthur and Doreen, Art and Neen to their friends, weren't expecting a minister. They were expecting instead a little girl, having already brought my brother Greg into the world. The balance required of the suburban life they'd chosen for themselves would have been maintained had they had one of each, a perfect pair, and they could have stopped there. But it was with my sister Lorraine four years later that the family was considered complete. Once we were all present and accounted for, I could begin exploring my life's path, mainly by learning, as a headstrong Leo, how to navigate the shifting ground of a middle child. It would launch a lifelong struggle between the inner lion who knew what he wanted and the inner lamb who knew what others wanted. Both of them would be needed on the journey. North Vancouver in the 1950s wove together spectacular natural beauty with reassuring human hopefulness. It was excellent soil for the cultivation of a minister's soul or that of any idealist. The lower mainland in the post-war years was a thriving community of young families building a new and prosperous world out of the losses and ravages of the Second World War. Young men and women had returned home from military service to take up their new lives. Immigrant families, mainly from Europe, had moved in, seeking a place to restart theirs. It was a time of great possibility, requiring only hard work and a vision to see one's dreams fulfilled. My father was trained as an airplane mechanic during the war and served in Gander, Newfoundland, when he was discharged, he came home to North Vancouver and accepted a scholarship for Teachers College. But learning arts and crafts, basket weaving, as he described it, didn't feel like real work to him. So he left after a year to take up employment 
with Woodward's department store. He started at the bottom, literally, installing flooring, and went on from there to make a career in sales. A fierce work ethic flowed through my father's veins. His own father had died in an industrial accident when my dad was eight years old. No compensation came their way, so my father became the little man of the household, which included his mother and his younger sister. He supported the family by flying around the neighborhood on his bike after school and on weekends, delivering papers and making butcher shop deliveries. If hard work came naturally to my father, so did idealism. My grandfather had had an artistic temperament and was generous to a fault, whipping off small oil paintings after work and giving them away to friends and strangers alike for free. It drove my pragmatic grandmother crazy. He could have sold those paintings. My father was generous, like his father, lending a hand to any who needed it, thinking the best of people, and seeing only opportunity ahead of him, never risk. I am the apple who has not fallen far from that tree. My father did well at Woodward's and soon accumulated the means to marry and to support a wife and family. My mother had become a registered nurse by the time my dad proposed to her. She had been a poster girl for the nursing profession, quite literally, by appearing on the front cover of Canadian Nurse Magazine. Hers was the face that might have launched a thousand careers. Like so many women of her generation, she left that career herself to marry my father and become a housewife and the mother of three children. North Vancouver was bursting with young families just like ours, with workaday dads and stay-at-home moms. It was a lively frontier town nestled into the folds of the lower mainland that brought glacial waters down from the coastal mountain range to meet the wide Pacific Ocean. That same water would evaporate out at sea to be carried back in the clouds to fall again on the mountains. It was a harmonious cycle of life that produced deep and verdant forests that were evergreen because they were ever wet. Those forests were a child's playground dream come true, an extension of life in the womb. Amber sap leaked from the pine trees and the spongy earth yielded all manner of dark foliage. It felt safe, protective, and nurturing. Believing nothing would harm you you could run wild in the woods and make spears from ferns to hurl at your brother and capture frogs and salamanders to take home in a jar. And it wasn't just the organic textures that made the place so enchanting. It was also its situation, like a vast, stuffed armchair looking out to sea. Feng Shui practitioners will tell you that in situating a home, you want to feel the protection of something solid and elevated at your back, and two supportive arms on either side. You also want something in front of you that suggests safety, a buffer to the world, like a coffee table. That pretty much describes North Vancouver right there. Grouse Mountain, strong but not rocky or angular, has your back. Lower and softer Hollyburn Mountain, now known as Cypress Bowl, to the west, is the right arm of the chair known in Feng Shui as the Long Green Dragon. Higher Mount Seymour to the east is a high white dragon for your left arm. If that's your armchair, your coffee table 
is mountainous Vancouver Island, off in the distance, protecting you from the open expanse of ocean beyond. And added to all this, North Vancouver faces south, inspiring a sunny disposition which is important in a part of British Columbia that often is referred to as the wet coast. It just may be the most perfect place on earth to live. It is said that smell is the most primitive of our senses, having been part of the mammalian brain from the earliest days of its evolution. That would explain why it's the odors of the lower mainland, not just the sights that tell me I'm home after all these years whenever I visit the coast. It's not only the wet and rejuvenating forest floor, but simultaneously the salty mist rolling in from the ocean, producing a pungent perfume that awakens all those early childhood memories. My path to ministry began in this magical world. It was such a rich, life-giving place to be a child that the optimism of my community and the stability of my home life were really just happy bonuses. The natural world itself told me that life was good as it breathed hopefulness into my young soul. St. Martin's Anglican Church, where I was baptized, was a humble wooden structure set into Grouse Mountain's lower southern face. Towering trees peered down from their great height, and flowers and leafy foliage hugged the base of the church's dark clapboard siding. The church did nothing to compete with its natural setting, but instead found its place as a harmonious part of the whole. This had a formative effect on my early impressions of God and of God's world, even though it was entirely unconscious. The church fit in to its environment. It did not draw attention to itself to suggest it was bigger or more important than the world in which it was situated. It suggested a support role rather than a starring one. I'd even say that as a result, as a young child, I sensed God was among us not above us. But you still had to have faith to see it, and that's what church was for. St. Martin's did have its old-world pretensions. We were Anglicans, after all. A working bell tower rose above the narthex, and a miniature lich gate welcomed pedestrians at the corner of the property, both of them an imitation of a proper English church. St. Martin's might even have thought of itself in its early days as the little church that could, upholding the ideals of the entire British Empire from its perch on the mountainside. But those were quaint pretensions, not ostentatious. In any case, we approached the church from the road above, not from below, so we went down to church, not up. Inside, St. Martin's smelled like the forest. Its wooden rafters, floors, and pews had inhaled years of wet winters, as well as the swirling smoke of incense. It retained a slight chill in the air, likely because the heating was kept off through the week. But when the morning sun poured in through the stained-glass windows on either side of the altar, it bathed the sanctuary in a radiant nimbus that was, to a child, sublime. It was as if the building itself wanted me to be there, calling me forward to take my place with the others as we knelt before God. 
There was a rectory on the property where the priest used to live. At some point, the church bought a house across the street to serve that purpose, so the on-site rectory could be used as a church office and as classrooms for the Sunday school. On Sunday mornings, we sat for our lessons around a wooden stacking table in what used to be an upstairs bedroom. They were taught by a friendly man in a brown suit, white shirt, and tie. A poster on the wall in that small room has proved more memorable and more instructive than many of the lessons I later learned in seminary. It showed all the books of the Bible as if they were individual volumes on a bookshelf, from history to poetry to prophecy, all the way to gospels and letters. This impressed me. The Bible wasn't just a book. It was a library of books. Even then, it occurred to me that when someone quoted a book of the Bible as saying one thing, you could just as easily ask if some other book said something else, perhaps something completely different. The person who portrayed to a youngster the human face of the church, and therefore of God, was Father Howarth. He was an old-school priest, married in the way of a true celibate, to the church. We, his parishioners, were all his children. Calling him Father came naturally— He was tall, looking down at me from high above as he greeted us at the door of the church, and even taller when he rose to deliver his sermons from the pulpit. Father Howarth might have been intimidating and even a little scary with his stern Sunday morning countenance and his enormous knobby hands, but every so often my parents would have him over for dinner, preceded by cocktails in the living room. He'd swish the ice cubes around in his glass as he traded stories with them. Once, over drinks, my dad asked him how things were going at the church. Father Howarth answered that things were fine, except that some of the women were getting their sex and their religion all mixed up. In his early thirties, tall and fit, he was an eligible bachelor who would have represented quite the catch to the single women in the congregation. He and my dad roared over that, the sort of sound that made you want to flee the room if you were in it or come running if you weren't. It was thrilling to see him like that, more like another dad than a father. Not only did we have a father figure at St. Martin's, the whole congregation felt like family. My godfather and godmother were church members who were friends of my parents. Some of the nuance of their role eluded me, but I got the drift, mislabeling them once as my fairy godparents. Some of the kids from church I also saw at school, where we were as familiar with one another as cousins would be. Their parents all looked more or less like my parents, doing jobs like theirs and living in houses not unlike our own. The adults who taught Sunday school were similarly interchangeable, and the leader of the scout troop was literally my Uncle Bob, who lived across the back lane from us. Church in my world growing up was a happy extension of my home life, and I projected that happiness out into the wider world, which I assumed was as safe and welcoming a place as ever I knew around the kitchen table or up at the altar. When Bart, the local bully, beat me up outside the confectionery around the corner from my school, it was as foreign an experience for me as it was frightening. People did this sort of thing? And when our teacher had us all hide under our desks with our hands over our heads, rehearsing for a nuclear attack which might be imminent, what kind of a world were they thinking of? Not mine. I rode my bike alone up and down the back lane, and kitchen curtains parted all the way along. 
Watchful eyes were keeping track of me wherever I went. I hope you've enjoyed part one of the first chapter of my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. I hope parts of my story evoked parts of your own. If so, I invite you to share those. You can write me through the contact page on my website at www.brianepearson.ca or to share your comments with others, you can leave a tweet on Twitter with the hashtag TheMysticCave. Thanks for joining me on this journey. I'm Brian Pearson, and this has been The Mystic Cave.